0: If you have your copies of God's Word, we're going to begin in Acts chapter 25 and go through verse 12 with one another. We're going to pick up verse 1 here. As you remember last week, we talked about Felix and Drusilla and all the background of that and how Paul shared the gospel with them, and for two years now, Paul has been in really house arrest or palace arrest in Caesarea, wanting to go to Rome, but uh, Felix is keeping him there because he'd like a a bribe first. He'd like some money before Paul is is released, and that's where we're going to pick up in verse 1. Now let's pick up in verse 27 of chapter 24. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Festus. Wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Verse 1, Festus then, having arrived in the providence three days later, went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul again. They want Paul dead. And they were urging Festus, I'm sorry, I can't say the word Festus without thinking about gunsmoke. And it's distracting to me. Didn't Festus have a donkey? Yes. I don't know. Just pay attention, all right? And they were urging him, verse 3, requesting a concession against Paul that he might have him brought to Jerusalem. At the same time, they were setting an ambush to kill Paul on his way. That's good spiritual leadership right there, isn't it? Festus then answered that Paul was going to be kept in custody in Caesarea, and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore he said, Let your influential men amongst the Sanhedrin uh, with you can come with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let's let's prosecute him then. After he had spent no more than... I love that word, no more. We'll see why that's there in a minute. No more than eight to ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea. And on the next day, he took the seat, which by the way is called the Bema seat, on the tribuna and ordered Paul to be brought in. After Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem... Stood around him bringing many charges and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. While Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no offense either against the law or the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Hey, would you be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there in front of me for these charges? And Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal right now, where I ought to be tried as a Roman citizen. I have done no wrong to the Jews. By the way, as you know very well, if then I am a wrongdoer and I have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of these things are true, of which these men accuse me, then no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then when Festus had conferred with his counsel, he answered, You have appealed to Caesar. And to Caesar you shall go. Let's ask God's blessing and we'll walk through this together.
1: Gracious Heavenly Father, I come before you and we ask you that your Holy Spirit would teach us. We ask that your Holy Spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Father, I again confess my sins in front of my church family and ask for your forgiveness that my relationship with you would not be affected thank you for the eternal security that you have washed my body and that i belong to you lord i ask that you would glorify yourself i ask that your your text would be our message I pray that we would be more in love with Christ when we leave here. Father, I ask this for your son's sake. Do it for him, not, not for me. So I pray this in your son's precious and holy name. And if
0: you are thankful to see the son this morning, say amen. All right. Wow, that was... I'll just close right there. You guys are on fire. All right. I've entitled this text in front of us here. I've entitled it, The Text That Is Next. For almost 17 years now, it has been my goal to teach the text that is next. It allows for God's Word to be our message it protects us from the word uh, veering into too far of extremes. There are those who stand behind the pulpit and teach very hard sin, death, judgment, and hell. While teaching very little of the grace and discernment and the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Or vice versa. It's all love and no wrath or judgment. So we see that in both directions. The whole counsel of God protects us from the rigidity of Bible knowledge. The whole counsel of God protects us from the rigidity of Bible knowledge and draws us into grace-filled discernment and wisdom. Teaching the text that, that is next frees us from a bully pulpit, by the way, where the pastor just gets to rail on his favorite subjects. It also protects the church from drifting away from the eternal truths of God to the ever-changing cultural demands of our society. My friends, the church does not gather together to meet the demands of our current culture. It gathers to glorify God and strengthen believers so that we might be the speaking and living gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's why we gather together. My friends, what the church needs above all else when it gathers is the text that is next. Even the parts that when you first gaze upon them, you look at them and you say, this has almost nothing to do with my life. Now, one of the, this text today is kind of like that when you, when you look at it. But I want to lean into that for just a moment. We tend to approach God's word and ask a couple questions. What does this text say about me and how do I apply this to my life? How does this help me today? And I and I want to be clear here, there is a place for that, but the place for those two questions are in the background, because the primary question that we must ask ourselves in any text is, what does this text talk to me, tell me about God, and then how do I bring God glory in my life? Which, by the way, will result, the more you know about God, the more you will realize about yourself, which is the bottom question, and how do I bring him glory, as how do I apply this to my life to bring him glory now that I know more about him? So, what I would like to do here is approach this text just a little bit differently. Normally, I unpack a passage, bringing up applications as we go today we 're going to unpack the text piece by piece, like like groceries out of a bag. In fact, I think if we there it is, and I always put watermelons on top. Is that what you do? I just want you to know that all right. We're going to unpack this passage piece by piece like groceries out of the bag. And what we're going to do is just kind of have an intellectual and hermeneutical flood of details that at the end it will all just be laid open in front of us. And then we're going to pick up a few choice items and lift them up to our attention. Items that will speak to who God is and how we can glorify him. Which in result will provide uh, information on who we are and how we might glorify God in the text that is next. Which by the way, I think you'll find to be very encouraging. Last week the text that was next was very hard hitting. It was about life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. And we were blessed to see about four people say, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. But it was a hard-hitting passage. This week will be very encouraging. That is the balance of teaching the text that is next, the whole Word of God. So here is the text that is next. So we're going to start out by unpacking here. Now, everyone get ready to put their nerd helmet on. We are going to be thinking our way through this. So all those who are willing to be a nerd for the next half hour, say amen. Amen. All right. Cool people are not going to enjoy this. All right. Here we go. Now, Festus and his donkey, all right, After arriving in the Providence, went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea three days later. The first thing I want you to see here is Festus is a much better leader than Felix ever was. He was a much better leader. Felix was a procrastinator. All right, we talked about that last week. Paul has been in custody in the the palace for two years for no reason. Alright? Well, Felix did nothing but try to get a bribe out of Paul. We find that in Acts chapter 24, verse 26. Festus arrives after Nero says, you're not doing a good job, I'm going to replace you. Festus arrives, and within three days uh, of being on the job, he gets to work and heads to Jerusalem. There is already an application here, but I'm going to fight the urge and stick to unpacking the groceries here in this passage. So, Festus... Heads to Jerusalem. And when he gets there, the chief priests and the leading men of the Sanhedrin of the Jews brought charges up against Paul. Now, what I would like to do is just make a quick observation here. How fixated the human heart can be on hate. How Fixated, the human heart can be on hate. For two years, Paul has not been in the city of Jerusalem. He's been under palace arrest. And yet, the first thing out of the mouths of the Jewish leadership when Festus and his donkey arrive three days after getting to the post is how much they hate Paul. They cannot let it go. The funny thing is, they know it's pure hate. In fact, they know that they don't even have a case against Paul. They know that if they go to the Roman court, there is no way they are going to win this. In fact, we see it here in the text. It says here, they were pleading with, there it is in the purple, they were pleading with Festus, requesting a concession against Paul. This request is all about conceding because they knew there was no case to win without concession. If they followed the law, there's no way they would win. That's why, by the way, why we see the word request here. Concession right there. This concession against Paul. After all, it's been two years and likely they do not have any witnesses. They, do, they don't have any facts. In fact, the word concession here in the Greek is the word karen, meaning we need you to do us a favor. Now, you know you are in trouble with the law when you are asking for a favor as it relates to the law. How many here have ever been pulled over speeding? You're dead to rights. And you say, may I ask for a what? A favor, grace, mercy. Don't give us what is coming to us. We find this word favor in the NIV, the NLV, the ESV, and the BLB. That's the book for me. Now, we usually ask for favors in order to bypass standard protocol. Hey, I, I I need a favor. I need an exception here. Now, on top of this, on top of this, the word request here is written in the imperfect tense that precedes the word favor in the Greek, making it an ongoing request that indicates an element of constant, never-ending pressure. We all know what this is like. So he gets there and they never stop pestering him with consistent, constant pressure, a favor, an exception as it relates to Paul. Now we know all how this feels like. After all, we live in the 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 Mecca of pressure in Grand Rapids. How many of you have ever had a friend who it was involved in a pyramid scheme in Grand Rapids? Anyone out at all? We know pressure, do we not? How many here have ever had friends where not only did they want you to buy their superior product above all else, but you could become your own business owner underneath them? Anyone at all? Of course we have. This is Grand Rapids. Let me ask you a question. Would these people, God bless them, take a simple no for an answer? What's the answer? No, there's no movement that way. They'll simply find ways to bring it up at every conversation, no matter what the subject. I, I, I promise you, you could literally go to a funeral staring at a deceased friend in the casket, and, and sometimes, you know, what's the thing you always say when, when someone's in the casket, they look what? They look good. I always wonder, well, no, they look dead. And I go to a lot of funerals, folks, all right? But I understand, but sometimes they don't look what? Good. I swear you could be at a, at a, at a funeral at a deceased friend who doesn't look good and they say, if only they had purchased that Mary Kay I was selling. This could have been avoided. This is what's happening to Festus. This is what's happening to Festus. And he can't get away from it. It's over and over and over. It's in the imperfect tense. And he gets sick of it. Not only does he get sick of it, you can almost hear it in the text with that in mind. I mean, just read the next words. In light of the imperfect tense of constant pressure, look at Festus spent no more than eight days with these people. And every time he talked with them, they brought up Paul. Every time he talked, they brought up a favor. They brought up pressure after pressure after pressure. And his answer is never enough, and they kept pushing it. Now, Festus may have only been here, been uh, on the job for a few days, but he is not dumb. He was put in this post for a reason. Festus is well aware of their weak case. He even is more astutely aware that the last time the Jews sought for Paul to be transferred from productive custody, custody, is custody a word? It could be. Last time they tried to get Paul transferred from custody, um, they, they tried to kill him with a plot. We see that in Acts chapter 23, 12 through, 12 through 22. They tried to kill him. In fact... The letter that the commander sent with Paul declaring Paul innocent would have been in Roman record in Caesarea and Festus certainly would have read all of the records when he got there in order to deal with this hot potato case in front of him. It was also public record that Paul was given a 470 person escort from Jerusalem to Caesarea in order to protect him from the Jews and their plot to kill him. Now, I want you to notice something here. It was the plot of 40 zealots the first time. We see that in Acts chapter 23, 12 through 13. Now, it went from 40 zealots. You remember this? I will not eat and I will not drink until Paul is dead. Well, Paul gets escorted there. Now it's gone from 40 zealots. Now it's the Jewish leadership that have bought on to this hateful scheme. This time the actual Jewish leadership were planning on this. We see it in the words at the same time. They were setting up an ambush to kill him on the way. My friends, hate does not remain idle. Hate does not remain idle. It grows Let me say that with some different words. Hate, bitterness, resentment never remain idle. They grow. It grows in the hearts of people and it grows in groups of people to the point that it will consume your heart and others. But let's keep unpacking here. Festus listens to them, listens to them say, hey, do us a favor, do us a favor, please, please do us a favor. Bring Paul here. Festus knows the case history and he sees it. We see it in his response. It says this Paul will be kept in custody at Caesarea. Therefore, he said, You can come with me and see him there. And with that, we see two things we see the providence of God and we see the common grace of God in mankind. This lost man who does not know Jesus Christ as his personal Savior simply wants to follow the law and do what is right. That is the common grace of God. And he wants to do it in a sticky situation. And God uses this very tool of providence to protect Paul. But before we move into that, let's just keep unpacking the text here. So he does the right thing. And they kept bringing many, many serious charges against Paul. Notice the generalities of of what is written here by Luke. He says, serious charges, many charges. Can you hear them say, Paul did this one thing near that one man by that thingy by those people. How many here ever have trouble getting words? Anyone at all? Anyone at all in the middle of a sentence can't pull up words? Am I alone on that? Sometimes I'm at home with Amy and I'm like, hey, do you know where the ice cream scooper is? Because she always wants to eat ice cream. And so, I'm joking. And she goes, "It's, it's in the drawer next to the thingy general generalities that's what's going on here i love this here not only were they general but it wasn't true in fact 2 years have passed by it says here right in the text they could not prove their case with anything they have no witnesses after 2 years they have no evidence after 2 years they have no case after 2 years By the time they get done, Paul just begins to yawn because he's been there for two years and he says, I have done nothing wrong. You know it. It's in the Roman record. Felix has said it. The commander has said it. I've done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or against the temple or even against Caesar, which by the way, Festus, that's what you should be concerned about. I need you to hear this. Paul has been in custody for two years being declared innocent by a commander innocent by Felix his accusers have no case let me ask you a question and feel free to say yes or no or however you want to answer this how frustrated would you be if you were Paul for two years you're there and you know and everyone else knows you're innocent but Festus I like this here wanting to do the Jews a favor now this seems like a shift does it not? He wants to do the Jews a favor. Ah, the favor. We've been talking about that concession, right? That they've been constantly asking for. But what comes to my mind is why? Why does he want to do a favor for them now? Why why not just declare Paul innocent? You know he's innocent. There is no case. By the way, why does Festus want to do them a favor now and not a favor just three or four verses ago? Tannenhale says this best when he says this, and you're going to like this. I hope you, you can relate to this as well. Just because something is straightforward does not mean it is easy. Amen? Just because something is straightforward does not mean it is by any means easy. People who tend to live in silos. Now, when I say the word silos, people who live in silos, what I mean by that is who view things through the lens of what is best for me what is best for me what is my needs my family my wants my desires tend to see things very clearly black and white binary People who are responsible to live on the entire farm understands clear does not always mean easy. For the issue is not just what is the right decision. The issue also includes what is the right administration application of what is clear to the multiple perspectives and needs that pull in many competing directions that conflict with one another simultaneously at the same time. This is my life. Who wants my job? Let me give you an example of just because something's clear doesn't make it easy. Now tell me if we would all agree on this. I want you to if you agree with this you say amen. We should sing music that is doctrinally correct, teaches us about God and edifies the church. Amen. amen. It could not be any clearer. Do you think for a moment picking a song is easy? <laughs> Sometimes I find Luke in the fetal position in the conference room, sucking on his thumbs, crying out the word, Mommy! And I say, what's wrong with my friend? And he says, I'm attempting to introduce a doctrinally correct, God-focused, church-edifying song. Why is clear not easy? We all just agreed on something, did we not? Well, because there are multiple demands, perspectives, positions, styles, temples, authors, YouTube commentators, who apparently are now the authority of the local church, all simultaneously competing in conflicting directions, standards, and applications, all under the one clear agreement that we should sing God-centered music. Here's the point. Here's the point. If Felix does not find common ground between... The the Jews, the high priest, and Roman law, the Judean peace that he is responsible to keep will be broken. And Caesar, who by the way is no longer Claudius, it's Nero. How many here have had a bad boss? Anyone at all? Yeah. Who? Wrote, okay, you you raised that hand rather emphatically. Thank goodness it wasn't one of the associate pastors, huh? If he doesn't keep the peace and this clear decision, Nero might be becking for him, may come calling for Festus. How many here can see now that clear is not easy? So he offers what he believes is a compromise. He looks at Paul and says, Are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stay in trial before me in these charges? Now the word before me is very important here. He's offering a compromise. Felix would officiate the trial in Jerusalem and not abandon Paul as a Roman citizen to the justice of the Jews, who, by the way, just want to kill him. No, it seems reasonable, does it not? I will bring my authority over to Jerusalem. Excuse me, I got the heady, ha- hiccups. That's not in my text, all right? But Paul is no novice. Who did Paul used to belong to? Talk to me. Before he met Christ, who did he belong to? The Sanhedrin. He was a Jew amongst Jews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knows these people very well. He knows them by name. He's been to their homes. He's had fellowship with them. He knows them. Paul is no novice. He was once a member of these people. He knows their plans. He knows everything far more than Felix three days on the job would know. And Paul knew that this compromise would actually give them everything they wanted. He would give them everything they wanted. The Sanhedrin didn't care who presided over Paul's trial. The Sanhedrin didn't care where the trial was at. They never intended Paul to even get to it. They planned to murder him on the way. Verse 3. They don't care if you're going to bring him out to the rest house or the restroom. They'll take him out there. My friends, great wisdom must be owned when seeking genuine compromise. Now there's application there, but we can't get to it. Paul sees right through them. He says, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. I have done nothing wrong to the Jews, which, by the way, you very well know. Now, the word that comes to my mind when he says this is the word, ouch. This is one of the first time Paul gets a little pointed with the Roman legal system. These words have a stung just a little bit to Festus, as you very well know. Festus knew there was no case. In fact, let me go even before that. Felix, before him, knew there was no case. And Paul had had been declared in writing, recorded in Roman record, to be innocent. Yet he has been kept in ca- captivity because of politics. And then Paul says, I'm not even trying to avoid execution. If there is nothing to the accusations which these men are bringing against me, no one can hand me over to them. I want you to grab this. Paul is not trying to avoid justice. Paul is demanding justice. And since returning to Jerusalem meant almost certain death, Paul chooses a bold course of action. Now, before we hit the button here, there is so much application to this, even within the heart of the church right now. We have seen this. Now, this is going to be a hyperbolic example, but we understand the heart of this in our own lives. Let's go ahead and hit that button. He says, I appear uh, appeal to Caesar. First century Roman citizens could make an appeal to the emperor. Now, here's the huge part. Paul believed Nero would be a better place to stand than in front of people who claimed to belong to God. Paul believed Nero would be a better place to stand than in front of people who claimed they belonged to God. Let me say this another way. Paul thought he would find more justice, more grace, more integrity, and more of all of that with the loss than he would with the religious. The application from that just drips from that. I can't help myself. Here, just for a moment. How often do people run from the church of Jesus Christ when they need grace because they find more grace in those who belong to the world? May God change the heart of His churches. And he says, you have appealed to Caesar, so to Caesar you shall go. And the promise of God that you will testify for me in Rome is now going to be fulfilled. Now, we have just unpacked the groceries. We've avoided all application here. What does this text teach about God? How do I bring him glory? And what does that say about me and how I should live my life? So now that we have unpacked the text that is next, like groceries out of the bag, we are going to pick up just a few of those items and examine the application with the rest of our time, which will be brief. Maybe we can even make something tasty with what we have here. Looking at those ingredients, I doubt it. (laughs) There is nothing up there that I would willingly eat in my life but they make for good animations. Here we go. The first item I see here glaring right here is is hate. bitterness. unforgiveness. resentment. In the heart it eats us up. It will consume you. It will consume me. And by the way, it puts you in a prison. It will become all you think about and all you talk about, just like it was the only thing the Jewish leadership could talk about. So it would be with you and I. My friends, put hate, bitterness, resentment, and unforgiveness down. And forgive. After all, Christ loved us while we were yet enemies with him. Hate, bitterness, and unforgiveness enslaves the heart. Forgive as Christ has forgiven you. Life is better when you forgive. Life is better when you don't hate. The next item I see here that pops up is the item of good leadership. Festus did not procrastinate. He was proactive. He was a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper. There is a difference between the two. He was a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper. Peacekeepers like Felix avoid problems. And the peace is kept by allowing the problem to to hold everyone captive. Just leave it alone, don't touch it. And then everyone becomes enslaved to this person's demands. Peacemakers like Festus go out and lovingly meet the problem. So that it doesn't have time to grow and steamroll over people. Here's what I want us to grab. True peace requires proactive effort, not passivity in avoidance. With that in mind, how's your marriage? How's your friendship? Do you have enemies? We are to love our enemies. Proactively, not passively. Proactively go make peace. Blessed are the peace what? Makers. Christ was a peacemaker, was he not? Did he not proactively bring peace through salvation? The next one I see here is government and rights. Oh, this will be a fun one. Government and rights. Rights. God establishes governments. There's nothing wrong with using the provisions God gives us through human governments. I appeal to Caesar. There's nothing wrong with using the provisions of human governments. But while we are quick to agree with this, let us remember the reverse side of this truth. God established human governments as his tool. Romans chapter 13, 1 through 5, tells us that we should submit to our governing authorities as unto the Lord. And we may say, yeah, but but Trump was evil, or Biden was bad. Paul willingly submitted to the Roman government even as it was embodied in the person of Nero. Unless the government explicitly asks us to disobey God's clear will in the Bible. Clear will in the Bible. We are to be law-abiding citizens. Citizens that exercise the rights provided while submitting to the authority God has granted government. Here's a question. How did the church of Jesus Christ do over the last three years? How many of us screamed for our rights while openly disobeying like a badge of honor our civil authorities? A great deal of God's glory and our testimony was lost by the way Christians related to their government and taught us a lot about ourselves at the same time. The next one I see here is personal responsibility. I made that one the salary because that's my least favorite. <laughs> Personal responsibility. Paul was given a, prob- a promise in Acts 23. Be courageous. Tharse. Right? Where are you, Linder? Tharse. All right? Can I, Kelsey, can I talk about your tharse? Okay, I won't. <laughs> I can't. Too, I didn't get your permission first. So go talk to Kelsey. Paul had a promise from God. God is sovereignly in control of all things. Get this. Paul was responsible for his actions at the same time. He appealed to Caesar. He invoked his Roman rites and trial. My friends, our actions can move God's plan forward. We must be active participants in the will of God, not passive bystanders. Are you active? Now the last thing I hear, see here is, and when we're done, perspective. The perspective. Now by perspective, I mean God's perspective over our perspective. Have you ever been frustrated with the situation you are in right now? I think that's true of all of us. You think for a moment Paul wasn't frustrated? Considered what he endured. Arrested while doing nothing wrong. Attacked by his own people. Beaten to an inch of his life. Spent two years in custody from a procrastinating Roman leader who just wanted money. And then Festus tries to appease the Jews another time through compromise. And his only hope for mercy is Nero. Can we say frustrated? I like how Kent Hughes writes about this. He says, to fully appreciate this passage, we need to catch a whiff of the cell that Paul has been in for two years. Does your situation smell? From Paul's perspective, this is getting ridiculous. These two years were not part of his personal three-year plan. It was not part of his personal three-year plan. How about you? From your perspective, are things not as they should be? We must learn to see things from God's perspective because what felt like a two-year waste of time for Paul did more for the gospel and for Paul than he could have ever done with ideal circumstances. Paul will preach the gospel now to the most influential people in Rome and he gets an all-expense-paid trip. And as a Dutchman, I see the will of God in that. And it all came through frustrating circumstances. I want to say something here. Oftentimes in Scripture, the greatest opportunities for life and growth come to us disguised as frustrating or confusing circumstances. That's where a lot of growth and opportunity comes from. You know, there's a true story, and I'm going to close with this true story. Once upon a time, there was a young artist by the name of John Sargent. He lived around 1910, and he was traveling by train, and he learned that its train would be quite late. And while they, they got out of the train, and they, they knew it wasn't going to be moving and going forward because of mechanical issues, others were waiting and uh, uh, for the train to get fixed, and they were pacing back and forth in the station, and they were complaining about the heat. They were complaining about the delay. They were expressing their frustration. After all, this is not ideal. So the artist sat down in the middle of that frustration and he set up his easel. And while everyone around him was frustrated about things not being the way they wanted, he took out his paintbrushes and he began to capture a scene of oxen nearby. Little did he know that day that in the middle of frustration a work of art will be produced That absent from this moment of frustration, we would have never had or been created. A masterpiece came out of frustration. That's what we can do if we see things from God's perspective rather than ours. Your frustration is God's easel. Your frustration is God's canvas. God is never idle. He is always working. Even, not only even, but especially in our frustration. My friends, don't get frustrated. Get painting. It's amazing how much you can unpack, unpack out of a text that is next. May God ask His blessing, add His blessing to His Word and to His glory. And my hope, my friends, is that you learned a little bit more about who God is and how we can bring glory to Him. Which, by the way, will help us to understand who we are and how we can live life more abundant. May God add His blessing to this text that is next. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank you that it is full of application. If we would just take the time to see it. Father, bless these people. They belong to you. This is your church. We pray this and we ask this for our Lord's glory. In his name alone. Amen. I love you guys. You are
1: dismissed.